Bienvenidos, marhaban, and welcome to the first ever bonus episode of the Never Never podcast, exploring characters, institutions, systems, and concepts of the Dresden Files series by Jim Butcher. I'm your host, Christine. This edition of the Never Never podcast will include spoilers up to and including Battleground and many references to non-Files works. The Dresden Files features mature themes, including sexuality and violence. Also, I'm terrible at watching my language, so the Never Never podcast is intended for mature audiences, despite having playful, if not childish, tendencies. We're going to do this a little strangely, but bear with me. We're going to start with the Wicked Snow Queen we know and love, and then we'll go back in time to see from where she comes, back through 19th century poetry, through her Renaissance tiny stature phase, and through her conflation with Morgan Le Fay of medieval Arthurian fame, until we get to her far from humble origin, a Welsh queen who kicked ass 2,000 years ago, and in death became a fairy goddess of Ireland. So let's draw our circle and step through the way to the Never Never. At that instant, I realized the silence was not an empty one. I wasn't alone. The glittering snow on the alley floor blended seamlessly into a sparkling white gown, tinted here and there with streaks of frozen blue or glacial green. I lifted my eyes. She wore the gown with inhuman elegance, its rippling fabric draping with feminine perfection, her body a perfect balance of curves and planes, beauty and strength. The gown was cut low and left her shoulders and arms bare. Her skin made the snow seem a bit sallow by comparison. Glittering colors flickered at her wrists, her throat, upon her fingers, always changing, cycling through deep blue and green and violet iridescence. Her fingernails glittered with the same impossibly shifting hues. Upon her head was a circlet of ice, elegant and intricate, as if it had been formed from a single crystalline snowflake. Her hair was long, past her hips, long and silken and white, blending into the gown in the snow. Her lips, her gorgeous, sensual lips, were the color of frozen raspberries." Harry opines at how her beauty should have had him dumbstruck with joy and awe, but, quote, It didn't. It terrified me. It terrified me because I could also see her eyes. They were wide, feline eyes, vertically slitted like a cat's. They shifted color in time with her gems, or more likely the gems changed color in time with her eyes. And though they too were beautiful beyond the bounds of mortality, they were cold eyes, inhuman eyes, filled with intelligence and desire, but empty of compassion or pity. I knew those eyes. I knew her. If fear hadn't taken the strength from my limbs, I would have run. Small Favor, Book 10 The Mythology of Mab, Section 1 Introduction She has many names, but you may call her Mab, Queen of Air and Darkness, Monarch of the Unseelie, the Winter Court of the Fae. She also has many roles. She oversees politics in her court, as well as how Summer's court politics will affect her and the balance of nature. 
She judges her people and enforces fairy law and enforces the Ancelia courts. She is a demigoddess of nature, the entire season of winter, part of the feminine triple paradigm that graces each court. She fights and jockeys for power for her court. She is an extremely effective and crafty war leader, as well as an extremely skilled fairy sorcerer, and her most important role as Queen of the Wicked Fae is as Guardian of the Outer Gates, those which lead outside of our reality. We first meet Mab in Summer Night! Damn it, you two. <clears throat> Summer Night, book four, when she is in Harry's office masquerading as a client, one Miss Somerset. <laughs> we learn of the Fae's so-called bane of iron right off the bat. Fairies are profoundly harmed by the touch of iron and its alloys, and her cover is blown by her speedy retreat from an iron nail. But she is not to be trifled with. As monarch of the Ancelia, it is one of her jobs to ensure that all those of winter keep to fairy law. Additionally, Mab is the author, or at least sponsoring host, of the Ancelia Accords, a system of agreements held by almost all of the supernatural nations of the Dresden verse and many of its freeholding lords, from Dracula to dragons. These entities are called signatories. Mab is the one who brought them all together to barter peace and a code of conduct, including a redress of grievances under her aegis, and it is her authority that enforces them. Mab sits above all in her court. During some formal occasions, no one is to speak to her. As judge of her own people, she is frightening. Quote, the music stopped. The red cap froze. So did everyone else. Mab rose out of her chair, and somehow, in that instant of action, she crossed the distance from her high seat as though the simple act of standing up were what propelled her to the space nearby. As she came, the pallid finery of her dress darkened to raven black as if the air had contained a fine mist of ink. Her hair darkened as well to the same color, and her eyes turned entirely black, sclera and all, as did her nails. The skin seemed to cling harder to her bones, making her beautiful features gaunt and terrible. Unquote. Mantles. Mab is literally a force of nature part of a female triple godhead which, instead of maiden mother crone, holds to lady queen mother. Mother Winter is the most powerful entity in winter, but she is also the least involved with politics. She's a crotchety old lady who lives in a cottage in the deep woods of fairy in the never-never, trying to cook mortal passers-by and bemoaning the loss of her walking stick. Her true and complete purpose is not quite clear. Mab is, as queen, the most powerful player of the political game of the fairy courts. Third is the Linanshi, but there's already so much to cover and we do not have time to get into her story. Some future episode, maybe. And next is the Winter Lady. The mantle of the Winter Lady was held by Mab's biological daughter, Maeve, before being assumed by Molly Carpenter upon Maeve's death. Maeve is a hard one to wrap oneself around. Physically, she's tallish, luscious, with a blue-purple-green mohawk, but her personality, self-absorbed, hedonistic, controlling, cruel, even narcissistic and psychotic, I would venture, 
For a better portrait of her attitude, I'll give you part of her introduction from Cold Days, Book 14. Quote, Here's the birthday boy, Maeve said in a sing-song voice, flinging both arms up. She started towards me in a slow and slightly exaggerated walk. Technically, she wasn't entirely naked. She had silver piercings at the tips of her breasts, beneath her lip, in her navel, and probably elsewhere. I didn't let myself look quite that close. Her flawless pale skin was also spangled with gemstones. I don't know how they'd been attached, but they clung to her and sent little flashes of color glittering around the cavern when she moved. They were concentrated most densely around her... Uh, well, she'd been, uh, vajazzled. Unquote. It was a birthday party, so she wore a birthday suit. In contrast, Maeve's twin, Sarissa, is a calm, patient, dutiful daughter to Mab, who worries that if she signs on fully to being a fairy, she'll go mad like her sister. Almost if not all fairies are born mortal of a human parent and a fairy parent. Eventually, they have to choose one life or the other. To postpone the choice indefinitely, she goes shopping and to the movies and sports ball games with her mom, as a self-described sort of mortal world Sherpa teaching Mab how to interact with humans. Ooh, ooh, fun speculation. So, the she are almost if not all former humans. Even Mab lived and loved as we do once upon a time. At least a thousand years ago, she loved her twin sister, Titania, and her twin daughters, Maeve and Sarissa. In Battleground, Book 17, it states that Mab was in love with the wizard Merlin. Not the Merlin of the White Council, but THE Merlin, instructor of Morgan Le Fay, who was possibly Mab herself, advisor to King Arthur, ages backwards, comes back from vacation in Bermuda shorts, that Merlin. If she loved him, they may have been lovers. Think maybe he's the father of her daughters? Maybe they had more kids than just the twins? What would that even mean? Was he starborn? Was Mab? Are the two of them the origin of wizards? Is Mab or Merlin or both Harry's ancestors? Well, how about Elaine's? We don't know how far back wizardry goes. The White Council was founded by Merlin. I don't remember mention of any records older than that, but only a thousand years seems to discount most of human history as non-magical, so maybe no. Food for thought. Arctis Tor. In Proven Guilty, Book 8, Dresden describes Arctis Tor to Murphy, Thomas, and Charity as, quote, The Tower of London, the Fortress of Solitude, Fort Knox, and Alcatraz all rolled up into one giant ball of fun. It's Mab's capital, her stronghold, unquote. And when they go there, we get this description, quote, Mab's stronghold was a fortress of black ice, an enormous, shadowy cube sitting high up the slope of the highest mountain in sight. A single, elegant spire rose above the rest of the structure. Flickers of green and amethyst energy played within the ice of the walls. I couldn't make a good guess of how big the thing was. The walls and battlements were lined with inverted icicles. They made me think of the fanged jaws of a hungry predator. Unquote. We see in later books that Arctis Tor is much larger than just this keep. But on the terrace at the top of the spire, Mab has cultivated a very disturbing statue garden. 
It has trees, roses, benches, a fountain, all made like ice sculptures, held in perfect stasis for who knows how long by the constantly below-freezing temperature. Then he saw a cardinal, other small creatures, even a spider web with its hunter in the center, every one of them covered in ice and frozen in place. Harry says, quote, A swift look around showed me more beings entombed in ice, and I realized that this place was not a garden. It was a prison. Unquote. The Old Knight. We know that Mab is harsh, intimidating, and creatively violent. In Cold Days, Book 14, when Harry needed physical therapy, Mab's answer was to try and kill him in a novel way each day for over two months. In Small Favor, when Harry lipped off too far, she responded thusly, quote, Mortal brute, whatever your past, whatever your future, know this. I am Mab, and I keep my bargains. Question my given word again, ape, and I will finish freezing the water in your eyes. Unquote. But there are two prisoners in her garden of special note. Sure, for the plot of that book, but for the purpose of this episode, it showcases just how cruel and vicious Mab is to those who betray her. The first was a dead man, crucified on an ice tree. He'd had gangrene from his hands and feet, all the way up his arms and legs. He was held hand and foot by ice, but the rest of him was only covered, basically, in freezer burn. Harry, facing away, is surprised by a groan and whirls to look at the dead man. Harry recognizes him as Lloyd Slate, the former winter knight, who had helped the corrupted summer lady, Aurora, try to imbalance the forces of nature to cause an event much like the long night from A Song of Ice and Fire, a mass extinction winter. It reminds me of the line from the film Legend when the unicorn stallion is killed and the gump says to Jack, the hero, quote, Do you think you can upset the order of the universe and not pay the price? Unquote. And what a price Lloyd has paid. He's been hanging on this ice tree for four books now. He is naked and cold, filthy and unshaven, swollen, blind, and mad. His hair has gone gray and white. He has frostbite, gangrene, and blood poisoning. But the worst is the mangling he's endured due to Mab's torture. He's been burned, cut, beaten, broken, torn, forced to heal wrong all while being kept alive by magic, never allowed to die. When Dresden tells Lloyd that he's there, Lloyd is so relieved. Thank you, I'm so glad you're here, I've been here so long. I imagine Harry is thinking he's expecting a rescue, but then he exposes his neck and says, quote, Free me. Do it quickly. Free you, I asked. From this. From this nightmare. Kill me. Kill me! Kill me! Thank God Dresden, kill me! Unquote. Four books later, in Changes, book 12, Harry sees Lloyd Slate again, having been tortured for all this time. He'd been emaciated. His eyes had been deftly removed. He'd been tattooed and scarred all over his body, even on the concavity of his eyelids. Every mark was in different languages but they all said only one word, traitor. His teeth had even been etched. This is what Mab had to say about her accomplishment. Quote, 
I am somewhat proud of this, Mab's cold voice said. To be sure, the White Christ never suffered so long or so terribly as did this traitor. Three days on a tree. Hardly enough time for a prelude. When it came to visiting agony, the Romans were hobbyists. Unquote. Back in Proven Guilty, Book 8, Harry next sees his imprisoned godmother, Leah, the Lananshi, who explains from her iceberg the worst, worst part for Lloyd. This is spread over several paragraphs, so I'll be skipping bits for brevity, but we'll read it as if it were continuous. Quote, you do not understand his true torment. There is pain, of course, but anyone can inflict pain. Accidents inflict pain. Pain is the natural order, and so it is hardly a tool meet for the queen of air and darkness. She tortures him with kindness. She heals his wounds and takes his pain. She restores his sight, and the first thing his eyes see is the face of she who delivers him from agony. She cares for him with her own hands, warms him, feeds him, cleans away the filth, and then she takes him to her bower. Poor man. He knows that when he wakes, he will hang blind upon the tree again, and could do naught but long for her return, over and over, spinning him through agony and ecstasy. Mab, you see, is patient. She has time. And when he looks forward with joy to his return to the tree, she will have destroyed him, and he will be discarded. He only lives so long as he resists. This is wisdom you should retain, my child. Unquote. This becomes chillingly apropos when Dresden signs on in Changes Book 12 to be the new Winter Knight. Mab has been waiting for Harry for eight books to get deep enough in alligators that he'd actually agree to join her just to get her help. It wouldn't even surprise me to learn that Mab had a hand in Maggie's kidnapping to incite the necessity of her assistance, though I can't think of any textual evidence for such a dirty move from her. The New Knight Speaking of signing on, Dresden thinks upon his deal with Mab, her taunting closing of the circle, the negotiating of and agreement on terms, his murder-mercy killing of Lloyd Slate, but for us we concern ourselves with his uh, handshake with Mab, when it was all said and done, they performed the rite on the stone table, after which he reflects, quote, What we did wasn't sex, regardless of what it appeared to be. You can't have sex with a thunderstorm, an earthquake, a furious winter gale. You can't make love to a mountain, a lake of ice, a freezing wind. For a few moments, I saw the breadth and depth of Mab's power, and for a fleeting instant, the barest, tiniest glimpse of her purpose. Unquote. And then, thrice she claims him. Mine. 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 At the end of Ghost Story, Book 13, Harry wakes to a horrifying aspect of Mab, like a skeletal, humanoid, praying mantis, as she's been wasting away, losing power, and likely her ability to glamour, keeping him alive since his murder. She assures him that he is not dead, and he is still her knight, saying, quote, Your broken body fell from your ship into cold and darkness, 
and they are my domain. Unquote. Sidebar. Is this her true form? If so, she looks a lot like Tessa, the Denarian, in her insectoid form. And of course, Tessa was also human once. Harry wonders aloud if she is angry that he tried to weasel out of their deal. She replies, quote, You attempted to cheat the Queen of Air and Darkness. Mab hissed. You practiced a vile, wicked deception upon me, my knight. Her inhuman eyes glittered. I expect no less of you. Were you not strong enough to cast such defiance into my teeth, you would be useless to my purposes. Unquote. When I cover Ghost Story, we'll explore what that means to Harry. But here, I want to talk briefly about what it means for Mab. Did she know the importance of this before Lloyd Slate, or did she learn it the hard way with Lloyd Slate? Does she need, or has she discovered she needs, the services of someone who will defy her if she gets too evil? She was, after all, mortal once, and as Leah puts it to Harry about Slate in the Frozen Garden, quote, The mortal mind breaks down, not all at once, but slowly, the way water will wear down a stone, unquote. Being hurt, hurting others, and watching the goodness of her mortal self erode away, She's been at this for more than a thousand years. Quote, and when the last walls of his mind have fallen, unquote. Is that where Mab is? About to lose the last of her true mortal self? Is she getting tired? Does she want out while she can still remember who she was? I think these questions deserve some thought. I went through pretty thoroughly, but by all means, if I missed something insightful toward the answer to any of this, as always, please let me know in the comments. Even so, she has tried to convince Harry that now that he works for her, he belongs to her, and she'll be able to mold and shape him and corrupt him to her will, and there will be nothing he can do about it. But he is assured by the Archangel Uriel with seven simple words. Quote, Lies. Mab cannot change who you are. Unquote. A warrior queen. We see in Summer Night, Book 4, how the Seelie and Unseelie courts war over their collective primacy of power at the start of their season. On a huge valley battlefield, with a hill in the middle, atop which stands a stone table, deeply carved with runes, and very reminiscent of the site with the same name from the Chronicles of Narnia, Mab fights her summer twin, Titania. And on that stone table is where those with mantles of power, symbolic roles imbued upon real beings, are sacrificed, and the blood runs the energy down into whichever court, seely or unseely, summer or winter, is in possession of the table at the time. During war, she is truly terrifying, wielding a sword of poisoned ice and riding into battle on the back of a unicorn. Which sounds all nice and fluffy until you get their description from Summer Night, Book 4. Quote, the unicorn looked like a Budweiser horse. One of those huge draft beasts used for heavy labor. It had to have been 18 hands high, maybe more. Had a broad chest, four heavy hooves, forward pricked ears, and a long equine face. That's where its resemblance to a Clydesdale ended. It didn't have a coat. It just had a smooth and slick-looking carapace. All chitinous scales and plates, mixing colors of dark green and midnight black. 
Its hooves were cloven and stained with old blood. One spiraling horn rose from its forehead at least three feet long and wickedly pointed. The spirals were serrated on the edges, some of them covered with rust-brown stains. A pair of curling horns, like those of a bighorn sheep, curved around the sides of its head from the base of the horn. It didn't have any eyes, just smooth, leathery chitin where they should have been. It tossed its head, and a mane of rotted cobwebs danced around its neck and forelegs, long and tattered as a burial shroud. Unquote. Y'all, this is her steed. A razor-sharp cross between a ram, a horse, and a rhinoceros. I'm gonna nope. But the innumerable deadly graceful she-forces she commands, and the weapons that inflict instant frostbite and her nightmarish death mount, are not the only tricks up her sleeve. I'll be quoting from the Battle of the Bean in Battleground, Book 17, but it's a couple of pages, so once again, we'll be skipping through for brevity. Quote, Where Mab rode on her unicorn, a nexus of terror followed. Mab led a cohort of she into a formation of octocongs, their weird archibus weapons bellowing to little effect. A dozen yards beyond that, Mab led a cohort of she into a formation of dog beasts and their handlers. Beyond them, maybe four or five more. And behind us, more Mabs were doing the same thing. Glamour. I stared in awe. Imagine one person running 2,000 puppets at once. Mab was doing that in the back of her mind while hacking at the enemy with her frozen sword. Unquote. She is a master of illusion. Full stop. And when facing seemingly insurmountable foes, we hear exchanges like this. Quote, I know the she are dangerous, I said. But there's not enough of them. Not for what's coming at us. The clicking grew louder. The queen of air and darkness cast back her head, her eyes going wild, her smile widening to inhuman proportions. The numbers stand at one map to none. That advantage shall be sufficient. Unquote. And finally, she and her forces stand vigilant as defenders of the outer gates, where the outsiders are ever trying to break their way through into our universe. Good thing Mab is a badass, but where did she come from? Well, let's go back in time and find out. Section 2. Other Modern Portrayals Mab has been a character in Western literature for nearly 2,000 years, but she hasn't always been this dark goddess of pain and trickery. Most recently, that interpretation of her character has been all over the map. In books, TV shows, and movies, she's appeared as everything from the true identity of the Queen of Hearts, of Alice in Wonderland fame, to a quiet wish-granter of Peter Pan, to Morgan Le Fay, Merlin's student, to the diminutive four-armed insane mother of Oberon, she even features in the Queen song, The Fairy Feller's Masterstroke, based on a Richard Dad poem and accompanying painting from 1864. Y'all should look that painting up. It is a total acid trip. Like if Bosch had been influenced heavily by Brian Froud. Classic literature. In George Santayana's 1922 soliloquy, Queen Mab, she is described as a naughty sprite. She's touted as a fraud who sets men dreaming stealing into any place like a moonbeam. But dreams from her are not like those from the muses, true creative sparks. They are wantings and longings, she grants 
only for her own amusement. This theme of dream-giver is quite pervasive, going back hundreds of years. In Moby Dick, 1851 by Herman Melville, there is a dream sequence chapter entitled Queen Mab. Earlier that century, five years before his wife's seminal work Frankenstein, Percy Shelley wrote a philosophical poem which put into Mab's mouth a dangerously unpopular atheistic opinion in order to discuss these ideas of there being no god without having to attribute them to himself, much like the dialogues of Galileo and Socrates. It's long, 50 pages when pasted into a document, but an interesting argument that the inhuman Mab has with a biblical king of Persia over the soul of Ianthe, a Greek maiden. 200 years later, Joshua Poole published The English Parnassus with the subtitle, <clears throat> A Help to English Poesy, containing a collection of all rhyming monosyllables, the choicest epithets and phrases, with some general forms upon all occasions, subjects, and themes, alphabetically digested, together with a short institution to English poesy by way of a preface. Yep, that's the whole title circa 1640. In it, he has four short poems regarding the Fae in general, Queen Mab, and King Oberon. The first, Fairies, describes them as playful and revelrous, teaching birds to build their nests, making meadows green, pinching naughty maidens and rewarding good ones with warmth on chilly nights. But they are also darkly ghoulish, wearing snakeskin clothes and batwing cloaks, using glowworms as lanterns, stealing wax for candles and sweet honey from beehives, and plucking butterflies' colorful wings, quote, to sand the moonbeams from their sleepy eyes, unquote. This is something which the archaic language makes impossible for me to understand beyond perhaps to keep awake, so I leave it to you to decide, and if you know or figure it out, please let me know in the comments. I hate not knowing things. We hear briefly of Mab, their mistress, who robs cheese and milk and either helps or hinders butter churning. She steals babies, replacing them with kitchen utensils, and leads midwives out from their homes into the wild, quote, through ponds and water furrows, unquote. I don't know if this means she's trying to drown them, but it sure kind of sounds like that to me. The next one is called The Fairy Queen and speaks of more mischief and merriment more pinching or rewarding of maidens based on their moral fiber and housekeeping skills, fairy feasts had on mushroom caps with dew in acorn cups, with mice meat stew, nightingale brains and snail slime, with grasshoppers for musicians. Oberon's clothing starts, for some reason, with Mab becoming petulantly jealous over the stars espying her leaving a Greek battlefield. She rages and dims the stars. And then they move on to Oberon, whose fine cobweb shirt is, quote, Bleached by the whiteness of the snow, as the stormy winds did blow, it through the vast and freezing air, no shirt half so white, so fair, unquote. He also takes specific precautions to keep his skin cool under his fine clothes, a waistcoat, doublet, breeches, a mantle, a cap with a feather of purple flower stamen, a pair of buskins, I had to look it up, their boots, a belt, and a bugle, all made of the most preposterous materials, like flowers and the golden fleece of Colchis, love, pearls of tears, 
bleached with snow and dyed with maiden's blush. One piece is even woven by Arachne herself. Some of these ingredients remind me of the crazy stuff Dresden uses for his potions, like sighs and mouse scampers and sunbeams in a handkerchief. The last poem is called Oberon's Diet and talks more about a debauched fairy feast. There are some disturbing portrayals of cruelty and gruesome food. Oberon finds music in insects like crickets, but also in gnats and in dying swan calls. He enjoys pickled maggots, worms, moors, snail slime, bats and ground moles' eyeballs, stags' tears, and a nightingale's broken heart. Then Mab the Empress takes Oberon home in a macabre chariot. All of Poole's fairies seem to have a close affinity with nighttime, needing glowworm lanterns, candles, listening to owlets' screech song, and hunting nightingales and bats. Oberon, Mab's king, is associated with the cold. The royal couple have very dark tendencies. Mab's chariot and whip made from a hazelnut, spider's legs, grasshopper wings, and cricket bones. Crickets don't have bones. She specifically dims the very stars in a rage. It seems many of the seeds for our Mab were sown here in the 17th century. In The Court of Fairy, a poem in the Nymphidia by Michael Drayton, published 15 years earlier, we learn of the court of Mab and Oberon. Necromancy makes the palace float high, its construction of more gross materials, bat skin and spider legs with cat eyes for the windows. Mab and Oberon are touted to be mischievous and lascivious. Oberon suspects Mab is having an affair with one of his knights named Pigwidgeon. He was always eyeing her, writing her letters and giving her grisly gifts like, quote, a bracelet made of Emmet's eyes, unquote. So she hadn't when his suspicions began, but then she did ready her chariot and ran off without her maids to meet with Sir Pigwidgeon. Drayton leaves the two kissing and tells of Oberon searching their palace and discovering that she's missing. And he is pissed, taking it out on everyone around. He starts shaking servants as though they were Pigwidgeon, demanding to know where the queen is. Now this seems to echo an earlier tale we'll get to towards the end of the episode. The very first appearance of the Queen of Fairies in classical literature is in the Scottish folk song Tam Lin, published in 1549. The story revolves around the rescue of Tam Lin by his true love from the Queen of the Fairies. She is beautiful, seductive, terrible, and deadly, the Queen of Fairies wants to keep Tamlin, he fears, in order to sacrifice him to hell, as she must, every seven years, give one of her people to the devil. She begins to turn him into different creatures to try, and, to try to get his true love to drop him, but she would not do as the Queen intended. Finally, the Fairy Queen turns Tamlin into a hot coal, but his true love drops him into a well where he reverts back to human form, and the Queen cannot find him. She admits defeat and withdraws, and the lovers are happy ever after. We end this section with the most well-known of the classic depictions of Mab. It comes from the bard himself. It was published 50 years after Tamlin, but seems the source of all her depictions in classic literature. 
It comes from the monologue of Mercutio to Romeo at the Capulet's ball and is imminently quotable, so I'm just going to read the whole thing because it's not very long. Quote, Oh, then, I see Queen Mab hath been with you. She is the fairy's midwife, and she comes in shape no bigger than an agate stone on the forefinger of an alderman, drawn with a team of little atomies, athwart men's noses as they lies asleep, her wagon spokes made of long spinner's legs, the cover of the wings of grasshoppers, the traces of the smallest spider's web, the collars of the moonshine's watery beams, her whip of cricket's bone, the lash of film, her wagoner a small gray-coated gnat, not half so big as a round little worm, pricked from the lazy finger of a maid. Her chariot is an empty hazelnut, made by the joiner squirrel or old grub, time out of mind, the fairy's coachmakers, and in this state she gallops night by night through lovers' brains, and then they dream of love, o'er courtiers' knees that dream on curtsies straight, o'er lawyers' fingers who straight dream on fees, o'er ladies' lips who straight on kisses dream, which oft the angry mab with blisters plagues because their breaths with sweetmeats tainted are. Sometimes she gallops o'er a courtier's nose, and then dreams he of smelling out a suit, and sometime comes she with a tithe pig's tail, tickling a parson's nose as a lies asleep, then dreams he of another benefice. Sometimes she driveth o'er a soldier's neck, and then dreams he of cutting foreign throats, of breeches, ambuscados, Spanish blades, of healths five fathom deep, and then anon drums in his ear, at which he starts and wakes, and being thus frighted, swears a prayer or two, and sleeps again. This is that very mab that plates the manes of horses in the night, and bakes the elf-locks in foul, sluttish hairs, which once entangled, much misfortune bodes. This is the hag, when maids lie on their backs, that presses them, and learns them first to bear, making them women of good carriage. This is she." Unquote. From Romeo and Juliet, Act 1, Scene 4, 1597. Section 3. Morgan Le Fay. There is a controversy about this next section. Many scholars do not accept Mab as the same character as Morgan Le Fay, but enough modern authors have made the connection that it is worth talking about. This short section will go through this era chronologically rather than backward, because each version of the legend builds upon the other ones. Then we will resume our reverse journey. The earliest mention of Morgan Le Fay in Arthurian myth is by Geoffrey of Monmouth in the 1136 Historia Regum Britanniae, History of the Kings of Britain. It is purported to take place a generation or two before King Ethelstan of the Saxons united England circa 929 CE. Not much is given about her here. Morgan is the eldest of nine Fay sisters on Avalon. She is benevolent, and heals the mortally wounded Arthur so that he may return from Avalon in England's hour of need. Around 1230, an unknown author penned the Vulgate Cycle, which adds many of the elements of the story of Arthur we know today. The Holy Grail, Lancelot, and his affair with Guinevere. It also gives Morgan Le Fay a whole backstory. She is the older half-sister to Arthur, studied in astronomy, astrology, healing, and magic, she even studied magic under Merlin. At one point, Arthur's father, Uther Pendragon, betrothes her to an ally king, 
but she is having none of that. So she goes on a fuck binge, including Mordred, Arthur's enemy. They are caught by Guinevere, sparking Morgan's hate of Arthur's wife. Morgan spends a lot of time cooking up cockamamie plans, and I mean truly ludicrous plans, to break up her brother's marriage to Guinevere. After years of failing at this, Morgan reforms eventually learning of Guinevere's infidelity with Lancelot. Arthur finds her accidentally, as she's been sequestered in her castle. Arthur thought Morgan was dead, due to the cessation of the royal couple's life regularly turning into the medieval equivalent of a disastrous Jim Carrey movie. Seeing her brother in person for the first time in so long, her conscience will not let her see him leave without snitching on Gwen and Lance. And with the revelation, Arthur confronts Guinevere and puts her on trial. In penance, Morgan moves to the magical island of Avalon. There, she is the first to ferry Arthur once he's been mortally wounded by Mordred. Mordred's mother, in this earlier version, is Morgaz, who is a distinct and unrelated character to Morgan, and Mordred's usurpation of Arthur's throne, entirely his own idea. The further we go, the more sordid and treacherous Morgan's story gets. By the time of Thomas Mallory's Le Mort d'Arthur in the late 1400s, Morgan is still the half-sister of Arthur, but together they conceive Mordred, the rebel who overthrows Arthur, and of course, Mordred is manipulated by Morgan to topple the king. This has become the seminal volume of British mythology, and the prime source of almost every adaptation since. Section 4. Irish Folklore Before we start on this section, there is a brief mention of sexual violence, so I will issue a trigger warning at the appropriate time, and you can skip ahead about 30 seconds to avoid it. Also, there is some disagreement between scholars as to whether or not the woman from this story was a real person. There are deeds which are certainly embellished, if not made up from whole cloth. Though there is evidence, I find compelling, that she was a historical figure, such as her total lack of supernatural powers, like most figures of folklore in Ireland. So I choose to present her as a person, rather than a myth. And lastly, before we begin, here, with scant exception, folks, is where my pronunciation becomes abhorrent, as the characters and place names are all in Irish Gaelic. My sincerest apologies to the proud and noble people of Ireland. I am doing my best. Names. Mab ultimately comes from ancient Irish legends first put to vellum 1600 years ago, and based on a figure from history who reigned around the time of Christ. And Nicodemus, incidentally. Let's see, her name is spelled M-E-D-B. I have been assured by a native Gaelic speaker about the pronunciation of this name, at least. The E makes a long A sound, and the D is more of a D-H, and the B is more of a B-H. So together the last two letters make the V sound. That's right, my peeps. Mab's original name is pronounced Maeve. Queen Maeve of Connacht. I suspect that the spelling is where the pronunciation changed. Those who knew the spelling began to call her Mab, and those who knew the pronunciation began to spell it Maeve, M-A-E-V-E, and eventually they became distinct characters, sometimes sisters, sometimes rivals, and to us, mother and daughter. 
This snippet was too good to leave out, but I put it here to keep from spoiling the Mad Maeve thing. In my opinion, the reason modern authors of King Arthur adaptations began to conflate Mab and Morgan Le Fay, well, besides the the fairy addendum, is because of names. Oh, it's always because of names. Specifically, the similarity between the name Morgan and the Morrigan, another Irish sovereignty goddess. The Morrigan was likewise renowned for being a warrior. In fact, she was a goddess of war, battle, and psychopomposity. That's a word I just made up the adjective form of psychopomp. So like a Valkyrie, she would guide the fallen to the land of the dead, usually in the form of a crow. The Morrigan and Queen Maeve even appeared on the same side of the same story, the invasion of Ulster. And you'll never guess what other Irish goddess was on the other side of that battle. Ethna, daughter of Baelor, who you may know better as Ethniu. That, and her connection to the Formori, is another episode altogether. More on names. The root of the name Maeve was thought by academic Heinrich Zimmer to be from Maeve, the Celtic word for mead, and means the intoxicating one. But I doubt it. She was not known for making, imbibing, nor plying others with alcohol. I mean, she was beautiful, and she was a seductress with many partners, but the sex-negative morals of the Christian scholars who came later simply do not reflect the sexual and social norms of her time. Meaning, the implication that one would have to be drunk to have lots of sex is just nonsense. The other possible route, suggested by Georges Jean Pinot, and one which I find more likely, is the word med, meaning to take appropriate measures or, more simply, ruler, as she was a queen, and there are other similar Gaulish names like Mivnatus, meaning he who is used to the appropriate judgment. I think this latter route much more likely. Whatever the meaning of her name, whether as a monarchy deity or ruler of the real Connacht in Wales, Queen Maeve is still an important figure in Ireland. There are many places in Ireland and Wales named after her, and she even featured on the Republic of Ireland's one-pound note before they switched to the Euro. Relationships Queen Maeve appears in many Irish folk tales, but doesn't really have one of her very own. Still, we know much of her story from these ancient legends. In some versions of her tales, she was twice as big as her giant husband, and in all versions, it was said that her beauty deprived men of two-thirds of their courage. Yep, exactly two-thirds. She was a fierce warrior of great martial prowess with chariot and sword, and a capable leader with strategic political cunning, with a vigorous libido and sexual agency. Apparently, she never said goodbye to a lover without a new one waiting in her bed. Sounds like another Maeve we know. In fact, the... Fetcherted Maeve, that's Maeve's manshare, was devoted to this very topic. It originally comes from the Yellow Book of Lycan manuscript. Most of Queen Maeve's partners were seduced, using sex to trick or manipulate them. Or she just wanted to get off. She loved to fight and to fuck, much like most ancient male heroes. But, you know, better. Sadly, here is your trigger warning, shouldn't be more than 30 seconds. Okay. She left her first husband, Cahor, because he was jealous, cowardly, and miserly. He fumed. He found her, and he raped her. We're done with the hard trigger stuff. Told ya. 30 seconds. Nothing is said of how this affected her, or if indeed it did. 
other than her desire for revenge. Queen Maeve swore she would kill him, and ever after the kingship of her realm was available only to the man who supplicated to marry her, and then became her subject, however royal. Kind of like the male pilot fish who literally attaches himself to the female till death do they part, and depends on her for sustenance and protection in exchange for sperm. Seriously, it's weird, look it up. She had established a Maeveriarchy. So thanks to the fella from Hog and Dice YouTube channel for the anglerfish simile and the word Maeveriarchy, I really wish that I had thought of that. Queen Maeve had more king consorts, but her favorite was Alil Makmata, with whom she birthed eight sons and two daughters. Some say it was only seven sons. <laughs> yeah, only. Toin Bokuli, the cattle raid of Kuli. Once in bed, chatting with her husband, Alil started to tell her how lucky she was to have landed him as a partner. Now, this did not go over well. Queen Maeve admonished him recounting her pedigree, why she was the daughter of Okad Filuk, High King of Ireland, who gave her the queenship of Connacht because she earned it. She was the noblest, most generous, the bravest, the most capable warrior and strategist of all her sisters. For fuck's sake. He's lucky she chose him. She chose him for his bravery, his generosity, his lack of jealousy. They were equals, and he would not make a fool of himself. Or of her. Right? The queen then proceeded to remind him of how many soldiers were under her command before she married him, and all the rich gifts she gave him upon their wedding. For dowry, he received a war chariot, lavish clothes, the weight of his arm in white bronze, and the width of his face in red gold. Weird measurements. But Alil would not relent that he was still wealthier than she, and that, get this, he had fixed the kingdom ruled by a woman. So yeah, they wake all their servants and instruct them to bring every one of their jewels and arms, even the livestock, into their bedroom so that it could be compared. It had to have been a giant bedroom. <laughs> so yeah, they're basically playing a game of my wealth is bigger than your wealth. And turns out they're entirely equal, except that Alil has one bull who is truly magnificent and tips the balance in his favor. Queen Maeve sent her servants to acquire a bull that could outshine her husband's, and they found it in the province of Ulster, on the lands belonging to a cattle herder named Dara Macfachna, in the domain of none other than Cahor. She offered Dara land, wealth, and a knight with her, put as, quote, the friendship of her thighs, unquote, in order for her to possess the bull. At first, he was totally game, but then he discovered that if he wouldn't sell, she was planning on taking it forcibly, and so he said no instead. So, you know, in order to show up Alil, she obviously had to go to war to get the bull. Queen Maeve raised forces from all over Ireland, even recruiting Cahor's estranged son, Cormac Conlana, I think, and his foster father, Fergus Mac. Roich, I think. The Ulstermen had only a teenager to lead the opposing army, Cochulain, who managed to keep the invaders at bay, Leonidas-style, by defending river fords rather than mountain passes. Many heroes accepted the challenge of single combat with Cochulain, but he always prevailed. He also terrorized her, 
killing pets and handmaidens with stones from a sling. Queen Maeve did finally manage to steal the bull, but was ultimately forced to retreat. For one last dig, she defaced a mountain in Ulster, blazing a cattle trail that would remind her enemies of her disrespect for them forever after. You'll remember the mention of white bronze in the rich dowry. This would indicate that Queen Maeve's tale is from the Bronze Age. The Tua de Danen, or Tua Dei, were the gods, heroes, and peoples who fought against the Fomorian invaders who brought iron to the British Isles. This metal, which kills so much more efficiently than bronze, was a bane to the Tua Dei. They morphed, over time in the stories, into the Ai Shi. I'll let you guys connect the dots from there. Cheating Prophecy After seven of her sons were born, which may or may not be all of them, Queen Maeve went to a druid with a cunning plan to cheat prophecy. She wanted to be assured of having her revenge against Cahor, so to trick the fates, she asked, Which of my sons will kill Cahor? The druid responded that the son had already been born, and that his name would be Bane. Well, none of her sons were named Bane. Did the prophecy trick her back? Not Queen Maeve. So she renamed all her sons Bane, so that she had seven chances at vengeance. Like George Foreman naming all his kids George, even his daughters. Turned out one of them eventually killed Cahor. But it was the wrong Cahor. So fate had the last laugh after all. Damn prophecy, it'll bite your prick off every time. Leaving Alil. She would later have an affair with Fergus, the same estranged father-in-law of Cohor, during her marriage to Alil. It took 30 lovers to sate her, but Fergus could do it alone, they said. Years later, Alil had Fergus killed in a jealous fit. Sound like a jealous King Oberon to you? Quote, Once, after deeds of valor, the whole court was by the lake on Magai, where they had a large encampment in which games and gatherings were held. Now on a certain day, the whole host went into the lake to bathe. Go down, O Fergus, said Syl, and drown the men. They are not good in water, said Fergus. Nevertheless, he went down. Maeve's heart could not bear that, so she went into the lake. As Fergus entered the lake, all there was of gravel and of stones at the bottom of the lake came to the surface. Then Maeve went till she was on the breast of Fergus, with her legs entwined around him, and then he swam around the lake and jealousy seized Alil. It is delightful what the heart and the doe are doing on the lake, O Lured, said Syl. Why not kill them, said Lured, who had never missed his aim. Do thou have a cast at them, said Alil. Turn my face towards them, said Lured, and bring a lance to me. Fergus was washing himself in the lake, and his breast was towards them, and his chariot is brought to Alil so that it was near him, and Lured threw the lance, so that it passed out through his back behind. The cast has gone home, said Lured. That is true, said all. It is the end of Fergus, unquote. From the death of Fergus McRoich. The queen never forgave him. Later, when Alil was caught with a lover, Queen Maeve had him killed in remembrance of Fergus. Death by Cheese Queen Maeve's invasion of Ulster over the bull gained her an enduring enemy in Forbaid, who lost his mother in the war. That is, in one translation, quote, They say that Maeve killed her, and that through her side the swords brought forth Forbaid Mac Cohor. 
That means Maeve killed this dude's mother and then delivered this dude into the world with a posthumous cesarean. Needless to say, he nursed one hell of a grudge. Years later, as a young man, Forbade watched Queen Maeve as she would bathe in her regular bathing pool. He practiced and practiced shooting stones with a sling until one day, eating lunch, he saw her and was so enraged he didn't even look to find a stone. He took the piece of hard cheese in his hand and slung it with such force and accuracy that it hit her square in the forehead, killing her instantly. This sounds exaggerated to me. Pure speculation, but it's more likely he hit her with a stone, perhaps in the temple, knocking her unconscious, whereupon she drowned. Even after such an ignominious end, Queen Maeve was buried with all honors, under a large stone cairn, standing up and facing her enemies in Ulster. Section 5. Conclusion. Between Queen Maeve's death around 50 CE and the 4th century when her story was recorded, she had become deified as an Irish sovereignty goddess, a legendary personification of power and authority of the monarchy and the land, much like King Arthur became to the English. She had once been revered as one of the gods, the Tuatha but was later diminished to the Aishi, the sometimes frightening, sometimes fickle fair folk who lived under hills and barrows. Then came Merlin's apprentice, Morgan Le Fay, whom later authors would cross with Mab. But by the time Tam Lin was written, Christianity had relegated her and all the Tuatai to the status of fairy, where she languished as a tiny, mischievous, though gruesome, succubus-like creature for hundreds of years. Until the 1990s, when authors and other creators began to give her back the supremacy of her former self. From Queen Maeve, Mab received strength, leadership, manipulation, a bit of petty pride, sexual agency, matriarchy, sealing contracts with sex, be it with a queen who embodied the land and the rulership of it, or, you know, with a thunderstorm. Morgan Le Fay made her a powerful sorcerer and connected her to Merlin. Classic literature gave her a kind of thieves' honor, relenting from hounding Tam Lin when outwitted fair and square. It also imparted the power to judge and punish, if back then only maidens who didn't keep a tidy house. Mab gained dominion over the macabre, bones and cruelty, the ability to shape-change humans and to affect nature to suit her purposes. Dimming the stars is not a far cry from causing winter to linger for six extra months. This is the Mab we know. The legacy of all her beginnings rolled into one, finally allowing her to terrify Harry, and us, as Mab, the Queen of Air and Darkness. One final quote to sum up Mab's personality, both as protector and predator. In Cold Days, Book 14, Mother Summer takes Harry to the Outer Gates to better his understanding of the dangers almost no one knows even exist. He sees impossible abominations, slavering, battling to get in, and hundreds of thousands of winter she-soldiers, many times, perhaps an order of magnitude more than Harry had believed, armed and armored, forming up to fight. Oh, and he sees billions and billions of fucktons of bones. Quote, What happens if they get in? I asked. Mother Summer's lips thinned. Everything stops. Everything.
Holy crap, I muttered. Does Summer have a place like this too, then? Mother Summer shook her head. That was never its task. Your council's estimate was fairly close, counting only those troops protecting the hearts of winter and summer. Mab has more than that. She needs them. For this. I felt like I'd been hit repeatedly in the head with a rubber hammer. So Mab's troops outnumber yours by a jillion? Indeed. So she could run you over at any time? She could, Mother Summer said. If she were willing to forfeit reality. I scanned the length of the wall nervously. It looked like it went on forever, and there was fighting all along its length. You're telling me that this is why Mab has her power? To... to protect the borders? To protect all of you from the outsiders, mortal. Then why does Titania have hers? I asked. To protect all of you from Mab. Unquote. Arigato, Dankeschön, and thank you all kindly for listening. I've been your host, Christine. Thanks to Leonard Brown for reading the quotes so engagingly. Thank you to Kevin McLeod for providing the music for this episode. Links below. Thank you to my supporters, without whom this project would not be possible. You know who you are. Thank you to my inspirations, those literary podcast giants on whose mighty shoulders I attempt to balance. And thanks to Jim Butcher for creating such a thrilling and insightful series, up about which I simply cannot shut. The Never Never Podcast is hosted on Podbean and is also available on Apple, Google, Amazon, Audible, Pandora, Alexis, TuneIn, Spotify, Stitcher, Listen Notes, and more. Guys, we're almost to 350 downloads. I am so thrilled. I never thought we'd get past my brother being my only subscriber, but we can grow. So please follow, share, like, comment, subscribe. Send me your feedback. Email me at theneverneverpodcast at gmail.com or follow me on Twitter at neverneverpod. You have my consent to flirt with my algorithms and to spank all the buttons. Take care.